0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's word, just slip up your hand. We've got extras in the back and church members walking down the aisles with those. Proverbs chapter 9 is where we are this morning. Proverbs chapter nine. If you are new to us at Saint Rose Community Church, we want to welcome you and welcome you to our study of the book of Proverbs. Uh, we have been working through this book since the beginning of January, verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, and we come to a significant moment in the book of Proverbs. There's actually a little bit of a structure to the book of Proverbs. There are uh, seven collections of wisdom literature within Proverbs, each collection has its own kind of style and its own kind of emphasis, and so we've been in collection number one, which spans from chapter one through the end of chapter nine, and in that collection, we have seen uh, the wisdom of God being portrayed in numerous ways. The whole book is about how we are to live in God's world, God's way, walking in relationship with that God, the God of the universe. But chapters 1 through 9, what it does in in beginning this book about wisdom, it is essentially one giant plea, one call, one argument for the value of wisdom. Chapters 1 through 9, we haven't even really gotten to the Proverbs, When you think of the Proverbs, you think of those individual sayings that are short and pithy, and they communicate one thing, and then they go to the next thing. So that's collection two and three, where there's just these, I think it's over 350 individual sayings that seem like they have no connection to one another. That's coming, right, in chapters 10 through 22, 23, 24. But what we've seen in chapters 1 through 9 is a more organized argument that God's wisdom is better than man's foolishness. But if you're faced with the decision between God's way and your way, choose God's way. We've seen this uh, wisdom's voice be portrayed in, in a numer- numerous uh, uh, types of ways. So one of the ways we've seen wisdom be portrayed, it's been portrayed as the voice of a father instructing his son, uh, preparing him to walk according to wisdom. We've seen 10 lectures From a father to his son. And then we've also seen this ongoing battle between two voices the voice of Lady Wisdom crying out in the street, pleading with you to come her way, and the voice of Lady Folly, the adulteress, the foolish one, pleading with you to follow her way. And what chapter nine is, it is a moment of decision. It is a final summary of here are your two options, here are your two voices, here are your two invitations. Which one will you choose? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter and then we'll pause and pray for God to grant us understanding. Verse 1. Wisdom has built her house, she has hewn her seven pillars. She slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight." Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incures injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, he'll increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and your "'Years will be added to your life. "'If you are wise, you're wise for yourself, "'and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. "'The woman folly is loud. "'She is seductive and knows nothing. "'She sits at the door of her house. "'She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, "'calling to those who pass by, "'who are going straight on their way. "'Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. "'And to him who lacks sense, she says, "'Stolen water is sweet.' And bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. All right, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we pray that in the text of Scripture this morning, we would hear your voice. We pray that in the voice of wisdom calling out with an invitation, we would hear the voice of Christ drawing us ever nearer to you, God. I just pray that this morning that you would please help me. Help me to speak true things very clearly with the passion that they deserve. Would you consume me with an affection and a love for you and an affection and a love for the people in front of me that they might hear and believe they might see and savor the glory of Christ and the invitation He offers us all and the invitation He's called us to extend to the world. God, we pray, help us to see these beautiful things in this text of Scripture. Speak by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Verse 1 <clears throat> Wisdom has built. Her house, she has hewn her seven pillars. Verse 1 is beginning to set the stage. It's setting the stage for what will be a banquet, a party, a gathering. Wisdom of God is portrayed as, as having built her own house, but not just any house. The house that wisdom has built has seven pillars. I was wondering what the significance of that was in reading this week and and, uh, looked to one commentary, and this is what it said. It says, Considering the restrictions of space in ancient Israel's cities, seven supporting pillars points to an exceptionally large, grand, stately structure where numerous guests are expected. Seven is the literary fiction uh, in this literary fiction, symbolizes perfection. Her perfect house has plenty of room to entertain everyone. Verse 1 is setting the stage of wisdom. Having already done the prep work, she's built a large dwelling place capable of showing hospitality to anyone and everyone who will come. Verse 2, she has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine she has also set her table now when we read she has slaughtered her beast that's unfamiliar to us like why would she kill animals like that so let's let's put it in our context she has gone to winn dixie <laughs> right <laughs> she has gone not to winn- she's gone to costco and she has bought in bulk <laughs> right <laughs> Verse 2 is meant to signify she's preparing a big feast, right? She's making the meat ready. She's made preparations for the banquet. She has mixed the drink. She's added spices to add luxurious flavor to the wine. She has already set the table This is a large communal celebration. She's prepared, and the invitation is for anyone and everyone who will come and dine with her. Verse 3. She sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways. Live. Walk in the way of insight. The invitation goes out into the town, and it's for everyone. The invitation is for the simple. It's for the person who lacks sense. This is not for the intellectual or the wealthy or the religious, this is not for the person who has their life all figured out and knows all the answers. There's only one criteria for accepting the invitation that is being extended here. The only criteria that Lady Wisdom puts on whether you can come to this gathering or not come to this gathering, the only one is whether you will come or not. Whether you will leave the path that you are on turn and accept the invitation and join her for the party in other words the only criteria for this gathering is your repentance your turning away from the path you're on to then walk the path that she's invited you to pursue leave your simple ways live and walk in the way of Insight. What is wisdom inviting us to in this text? This is a big, beautiful banquet for the broken and weary people who've been traveling the wrong road. This is the invitation of Proverbs, the invitation of Lady Wisdom, but this is the invitation of the whole Bible's story. This is the invitation of the gospel message we believe in as Christian people. And in uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophet foretells of a day to come where God himself will host a banquet, a party, a gathering, a feast. Isaiah chapter 25 verse 6, listen to what Isaiah prophesies. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that cast over all peoples, the veil that spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken." This is a future feast for all peoples from every nation where there will be no fear of death, no more sorrow, no more tears. What a party favor, (laughs) right? You're invited and I will wipe away every ounce of suffering you have experienced and turn it backwards and make it joyful again. The Old Testament saints Looked forward to a future reality where the Messiah would usher in a season of feasting, of communal celebration among friends. And then Jesus shows up, right? The story of the Bible has Jesus showing up with the backdrop of Old Testament prop- promises like this, and Jesus shows up and he begins to say things like this: John chapter 6:35. "I'm the bread of life." Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 7, verse 37, he stands up at a feast. And, and on that day, he stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In chapter 14:1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you that I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Wisdom has built a house. He has invited you to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Through Jesus' ministry, He gives us foreshadows of that future table. And He does that throughout His life by. Enjoying table fellowship with the kinds of people that you and I perhaps don't enjoy table fellowship with every day. Jesus' ministry was marked with meals where He invited the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the fishermen to enjoy table fellowship with the one true God incarnate. If you're here this morning and you feel unsavable unchangeable, and hopeless, then you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus invites to the table. That wisdom invites to the table. In fact, the the only way that you ever accept the invitation to sit at the table is if you recognize you need that invitation. That your path is not the best path. That there's a better invitation being extended to you. You've got to recognize that you need the Lord Jesus' invitation. Before Jesus died and rose again, He instituted a meal to be observed, right? A meal to be observed in remembrance of what He has done to remind us of what is coming. For 2,000 years, Christians have been reminding themselves through the Lord's Supper about the table fellowship that they have with the one true God. We eat bread together, we drink the cup together in Lord's Supper, and we remember in those moments that what Christ has done for us, how Christ is now present with us, and the future table fellowship he's promised we will enjoy forever. This this invitation of lady wisdom to all who will turn and come finds its final fulfillment in the book of Revelation, doesn't it? We read the passage earlier about that final day where we're in his presence and that day is described as the marriage supper of the lamb, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 21, when the the host of the gathering shows up and sits at the head of the table, this is what he does in Revelation 21.4, he wipes away every tear from their eyes And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy or true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Wisdom invites us. To feast forever. Truth number one. Wisdom invites us to feast forever. But in this proverb, of course, there are two invitations. Verses 1 through 6 was the first invitation. But then verses 13 through 18 at the end of the proverb provides another invitation in an exact parallel way to the first invitation. So, everything that Lady Wisdom invites you to, now Lady Folly chimes in and says, Yeah, but I have a cool party that you can come to. Verse 13 Woman Folly is loud, she's seductive, and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, she takes a seat on the highest places of town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way, Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet. Bread is eaten in secret, pleasant. Bread bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Lady Folly has a house. She too calls for passerby to change their course. She too offers food and drink. But notice how her invitation is inferior Right, Lady Wisdom has built this large, magnificent house. She sends out her servants to the highways and byways with invitation. It's an open invitation to be celebrated, a corporate, communal, joyful. The food is abundant and rich and satisfying. The invitation is come live and walk in the way of insight. But Lady Folly's offer is different. Her invitation is seductive, it's in secret. She offers stolen water and bread eaten in secret, but promises it will be sweet, but says it will be pleasant and exciting because of its secrecy. But in the end, do you see what's happening? She's not inviting them to a wedding feast. It's not a wedding feast she's inviting her victims to. It's a funeral. Her guests are in reality invited to the dead, to the depths of Sheol, to the eternal grave. Truth number two is this. Lady Folly invites us to the grave. And this is always the reality of disobedience. This is always the reality of living in a way contrary to God's way in God's World. Paul writes this to Christians for them to always be remembering where their sin led them versus where Christ leads them. Romans 6 says this, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is Eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two options. Feast forever according to the wisdom of God in eternal life He has offered, or die in sin. The Bible gives no third pathway, no third avenue. You either accept the wise word of God and enjoy the feasting forever or deny His words and plunge into an eternal famine. And this is ultimately our decision when it comes to our decision between trusting King Jesus for our salvation or rejecting Him. But it's not just that decision. We are faced with smaller decisions every day between foolishness and wisdom. And at the center of these two options that Proverbs chapter 9 has given us, the author describes the kind of person who will choose wisdom. So I hope you're seeing the structure of this Proverbs. First section, verses 1 through 6, there is this invitation to wisdom. Last section is this invitation to folly. And then in the center is what the author, author chimes in. No longer is it the, the voice of Lady Wisdom. It's not the voice of Lady Folly. It's the author who begins to describe the kind of person who's going to make the right choice. So let's look at that center section now. Verse 7. Verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he'll be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Three three phrases that describe a scoffer, three phrases that describe a wise man, and what happens when you correct those people. Truth number three is this. The key to wisdom is teachability. What the author does is he puts before you a pretty clear test for whether you're following Lady Wisdom or you're following Lady Folly. And the test is simple. How do you respond to correction? So so the first is, first category of person, the scoffer, the fool, the one who, you know, what's scoffing? You kind of think, like, you can't tell me what to do, right? A scoffer's like, reacts negatively to someone trying to tell them differently than they already believe. So if you correct this kind of person, what will you get? It tells us you get abuse, injury, or even hatred. If you correct a fool, not only will they not listen to you, they will lash out at you. Now, anybody ever experienced this? Anybody? If you've been living in the, the world, you've experienced this. Do you have a, a friend? Don't point, all right, <laughs> all right. But do you have a friend or a family member or a coworker who is unapproachable? You cannot take any kind of critique or suggestion or advice to that person, or else you will suffer their wrath, right? Now, there's wisdom here, right? The Proverbs are warning us to be careful when we need to correct this kind of person. I mean, there, there's a sense in which all of you need to be wise and recognize a scoffer when you see one, because the way in which that you're going to navigate that relationship at work needs to be strategic and different, because if you correct hard, guess what you get? Abuse, right? So, you, so, so this proverb, there's wisdom here, just sort of practical, that we need not take personal when we correct a scoffer and then they scoff at us. But, it's more than that. The text is not just warning you about those people who are like that. The text is warning you not to be that person. Are you the kind of person who can receive instruction and correction from your spouse without immediately getting heated? Does your spouse feel safe enough with you to be able to disagree with you or bring a grievance without suffering the wrath to come? Are you immediately defensive and aggressive, or are you self-assessing and reflective? Can you receive instruction from a close friend, from a pastor, from a teacher, from a boss? Do you expect someone, if they're your friend, to have the hard conversations with you? Or when they have the hard conversations with you, do you say, they're not my friend? The recipe for foolishness is to be uncorrectable and unteachable in your life. Now, On the flip side, the wise person is very different. The wise person receives correction and they actually benefit from it. They actually love the person who corrects them. They actually grow in wisdom in that moment and they increase in learning. You see the parallel of the the three things? Not only do they submit to it, they're grateful for it in their lives as a mean of grace. The wise person in this text seems to legitimately appreciate the kinds of friendships that will challenge them. Is that you? Do you seek out close relationships with other people so that you might more regularly be on the receiving end of helpful course correction? Or do you avoid relationships like that, like the plague, because they're uncomfortable? It's so intriguing to me that we've studied all this in the book of Proverbs and you come to this end of the collection and these two voices and the thing that the author wants to hit in this moment is your teachability and humility. And it's not just here, it's throughout the whole book, and we've seen it once before, um, and, and we're not going to hit this topic particularly again for the rest of Proverbs, so, so let me just give you just sort of like an onslaught for a moment. Just sit under these texts in a self-assessing kind of way. Does this describe you and your relationship with people in this church? Just listen. It should be on the screen. Proverbs ten seventeen. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Chapter eleven, fourteen, 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Verse 15 of chapter 12, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I'll say that again. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Chapter 13, verse 10, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice, wisdom chapter 15 12 a scoffer doesn't like to be reproved he will not go to the wise you know that you experience that right when you're doing something that you know is wrong the last person you want to talk to is a wise person because you know exactly what they're going to tell you anybody ever done that you when when you want to do something that you know is wrong you only go talk to the people who you know will affirm you in what you've already decided You feel it, you don't say it out loud, but you know it, it's true. Chapter 15, verse 22, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. Chapter 15, 31, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility. Humility comes before honor. How about this one? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Verse 13 of chapter 18, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. The key to wisdom is teachability. Teachability. Now, we've been crafted, we've been forged in the fires of American individualism, of celebrating independence, and I can do it my own way and nobody can tell me otherwise. We've been born forged in the fires of our personal freedoms and rights that we must fight for. And a lot of that is very good, but what that's also done is it's made us have a hard time with what the Bible's actually trying to mold us into. That is, humble people, deeply connected relationally with others in such a way that their giftings and strength might shore up our weaknesses and failures. Notice how the author moves seamlessly from speaking about teachability in a seemingly horizontal way with our relationship with others, then to speaking about teachability in a vertical way that is our relationship to God. Look back at Proverbs 9 and notice verses 9 and 10, the transition. Chapter 9, verse 9, Give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. This seems sort of horizontal, like telling us how to navigate this world of scoffers and wise people. Then verse 10, all of a sudden, shifts gears. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord except you recognizing that He's wiser than you beyond all comparison and you humbling yourself under His teaching and word? Teachability is not just a horizontal reality. It is more fundamentally and most importantly, a vertical reality. Are you teachable when it comes to the very things of God, with what God has said? And let me just add this. I'm betting you, you could take this to the bank, if you're not teachable horizontally, you're probably not teachable vertical either. You may think that you are. But God has commanded for you to be teachable this way. So therefore, to disobey that one, means you've got to be disobeying this way. Does that make sense? There must be a fear of the Lord that humbles me, that drives me to be humble with other people. True wisdom starts with a humble reverence and fear of the one true God and what he's actually said. Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, we were never created to be our own source of wisdom. We were designed to be revelation receivers, dependent on truths that God would teach us, applying those truths to our lives. We were created to base our interpretations, our choices, our behaviors on His wisdom, and living outside of this will never work. Church, it is a dangerous place to be, to live comfortably with a lifestyle that says, I know God says this, but... I know God says this, but here's why I will disobey. I know God commands me to get baptized, but I know God commands me to be generous with my finances, but I know God uh, warns me that divorce is not the answer, but I know God says that I should be put in this uncomfortable position, but don't treat God as if he's got nothing to teach you or correct you on. If it's been years since you've repented of anything or learned anything, it's not because you've arrived, but it might be the exact opposite. Romans 11, verse 33, puts God in perspective. It says this, Oh, the depths. Of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's been His counselor? Or who's given Him a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is the path to abundant and eternal life, submitting to that God. In conclusion, the Verses 11 and 12 says this, verse 11, For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Strange way to say that you are responsible for your decision. Strange way to say that... um, this is no one else's fault. That if you're wise, you'll, you'll reap the benefits of that wisdom. But if you're foolish, you alone will bear it. Pointed words in a cultural moment where all of us want to blame someone else for our foolishness, our upbringing, whatever we experienced as a childhood, the other person at my job, my spouse is the real problem. You will bear it. The choice is clear. Live wisely according to God's way or, or do not do that. And then the outcomes are clear. Live wisely and receive the benefits of that wisdom or live foolishly and experience the consequences of that foolishness. The way of wisdom is never without its blessing and the way of folly is never without its consequence. Chapter 9 as a whole is laying out the choice before you. Truth one, Lady Wisdom's inviting you to feast forever. Truth two, Lady Folly's inviting you to the grave. Truth three, the key to wisdom is teachability. Or put another way, the key is faith, right? Faith that God is God and that we are not and that His words are for our good and they're worthy of listening to. Now I want to close um, with Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself uses a banquet analogy. He uses a banquet analogy, and he shows the foolish decision-making of those who reject the invitation. So look at Luke chapter 14, verse 15, as Jesus uh, leans into this, this theme that's consistent from Genesis to Revelation. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So this is somebody at the table drawing on those prophecies and promises, and he's saying, Blessed is everyone who's going to be there, assuming that he's going to be there. Verse 16, Jesus speaks up and says, "But." He said to him, A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, Well, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please, please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I guess she didn't like parties. I don't know why i couldn't come. <laughs> Verse 21. <laughs> so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and... The servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus invites us to feast forever with him. He invites us to a close relationship with him right now, and the only criteria is that you come to him, that you forsake your plans, and that you come to him. But the the characters in the story made excuses. And notice how none of them were morally evil. One didn't come because of a wife, another one didn't come because of a business thing that he had going on. The reason they didn't go to the banquet is because they prioritize the thousands of other voices calling them to other places rather than the invitation of the master. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what will you do with the invitation of the Lord? What's the wisdom of the Lord inviting you to turn away from? What's He inviting you to do? What excuses do you make for your lack of teachability and your refusal to accept the invitation? Because one day... One day after a lifetime of excuses, the door to the banquet shuts and the invitation is revoked and none who are invited will taste and for all of eternity, they'll go with Lady folly to the place of the dead. Let's pray, let's reflect, let's respond on God's word. Lord, thank you for the invitation that none of us deserve. Thank you for inviting us into a relationship with you, to follow you, to trust you, to believe, to to have a king of kings and a lord of lords who knows far better than any of us. God, thank you for not leaving us in our own sin and foolishness. And Father, we thank you so much, particularly, specifically for Jesus who does stand up and say things like, like, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who says, come to me who are thirsty, and I will will satisfy your thirst forever and ever. Thank you for the invitation of Christ. Help us to be a people who are teachable, who do not scoff at your correction and word, but Father, who love it and embrace it and want it because we want to be all the wiser to know you all the more. We pray shape that kind of spirit of humility